Welcome to Grace Church of Philly. Especially welcome those that are watching from afar, our friends in Cameroon. I'm sure we have many watching there today. We have a number of uh, our uh, Spanish-speaking congregation in the DR this morning. And I hope they are not watching, but that they are sitting in a good Bible-believing church uh, somewhere over there this morning. But if you didn't make it, we're glad that you're watching uh, today. On your way out, uh, if you didn't see it on the way in, uh, many of you celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve, and whether you do or don't, uh, you might want to do this on Christmas Eve. It's, a, it's called a Christmas Eve remembrance and celebration. If you just want to take time with your family and uh, work through a prayer, some scripture reading, uh, singing Silent Night, and a closing prayer, it's all there for you. I think it would be a blessing to your family, and certainly it would please God if you did that. Romans 5 this morning, looking again at verses 1 through 11. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And the four Sundays of Advent, though there are, there are different schedules that are followed in Advent, the one we follow is we begin with hope, and then we go to peace, and then joy, which is normally the pink candle that is lit. And today we will focus on love, the incomparable love of God. Why should I be interested and attracted to what I call and what the Bible describes as the incomparable love of God? What difference would it make in my life if I were to experience this incomparable love of God? Admittedly, I grew up in a Christian home that I knew something of the love of God, but I must say that I was much more aware of the holiness of God, and I lived more in fear uh, of what would happen to me if I died uh, than I did desiring his love. But on September 10th of 1970, at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night, I came to understand and experience this incomparable love of God that flooded my soul. It's like Romans says in Romans chapter 2, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, that goodness that proceeds from his love. And I understand there are a lot of people who are afraid of the experience of love. Their hearts have been broken. Maybe they've been betrayed countless times in relationships. C.S. Lewis in his The Four Loves says this about love. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart certainly will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies 
and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, C.S. Lewis says, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. But thankfully, the grace of God can overwhelm and soften and redeem even that heart that for such a long time has been shut out to love. Yes, there are people who care neither to love nor to be loved, but they are sad people. They are pitiable people. They're like dead men walking in an Arctic world where the sun rarely shines. To have lived on planet Earth and to not have experienced the love of God is to be like a desert without water, a flower without beauty or fragrance, a body without life, and a human without humanity. That is true. You are not truly human until you are loved by God and you have loved God because that is why God created you to know him, to love him, to enjoy him forever. But what is this love of God that we talk about? How would you describe that, that idea that God loves you? When I think of the love of God, I think of it in this way. I think of it as his infinite desire and his infinite provision for my joy and my satisfaction in life and eternity. It is his infinite desire and infinite provision to meet the deepest need that I have in life. That's love at whatever cost. That's the infinite love of God based in infinite desire enacted on with infinite provision, meeting your greatest need, bringing about your ultimate joy and satisfaction in life. In our text this morning, Romans chapter 5, we will see that it talks about all of the, uh, the uh, themes of Advent. It talks about hope. It talks about peace. It talks about joy, as we saw last week. And this week, I want to focus on how Romans 5, 1 through 11 talks about the love of God. We'll see that it talks about that love in three ways. I'm going to talk about what I'll call the objective reality of that love. The fact, the proof, the evidence that God loves you. It's unquestionable. But then I want to talk about the subjective experience of that love. And then finally, I will talk just a little bit about the evidence of the effects that are seen in your life when you are experiencing the love of God. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, we read, 
these words, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Over and over again, this Romans text will tell us that each of the themes of hope, of peace, of joy, of love, and of life are only available in the gospel. They're only available because Jesus died for sinners. You only know them and experience them when you come to faith in Christ as your Savior. When we answer the question of knowing that God really loves me, I've heard so many times in life, and I'm sure you've heard it too, and maybe you have even said it or questioned it. Does God really love me? I mean, if God loved me, then why is my life like it is? Why am I so miserable? Why am I poor? Why am I sick? Why am I brokenhearted? How do I know that God loves me? And in our minds, we tell ourselves, you know, if God did this particular thing for me, I would know that God loves me. But because God loves you and he knows you, he knows what your deepest, greatest need is. He knows it's what's not on the surface of your mind. He knows that if you were healthy, if you were rich, or if you had the job you wanted, that ultimately you would still find yourself in a place in life where something would happen that you would question the love of God. But our text says if you want to know the love of God, the objective reality of the love of God, then you must look at the cross. It's not a pretty sight. But it cries out loudly in so many ways. God loves sinners. When you look at that blood-stained face, the pierced hands, the pierced side, a back that was no more than ribbons of bleeding flesh, all of that blood pouring out of Christ cries out without equivocation, God loves sinners. In the book, The Fall by Albert Camus, the cross is sort of portrayed as a crisis of love, or we can see in that book an example of what some would call a crisis of love at the cross. In that book, the hero of the story, John Baptiste Clements, presents a quandary. This is the quandary. Do you know that in my little village, during a punitive operation, a German officer courteously courteously asked an old woman to please choose which one of your sons would be shot as a hostage. Choose, he says, can you imagine that? Will it be this one, that one? Can you imagine a mother running between her sons, embracing the one, and then embracing the other, 
trying to make a horrific choice. Calvin Miller, Dr. Calvin Miller takes that little story and he says, here is a soul-rending crisis of love. And he says such a crisis of love ripped into the heart of divine love at the cross. Either we or Christ must die. For all of his love, Calvin Miller says, God cannot save both. Well, I like what Calvin Miller says to a point, though I do believe that God in all of his love can save both. He can both save me and he can both save his son who dies my death by bringing him out of the grave again. But I understand what he's saying. God looks at me, his son by creation. He looks at me filthy, wretched, vile, wicked, deserving of death. And he looks at my beloved son, my eternal son, the son whom I have loved through all eternity past and will love forever, the son who is loved like no other son. God looks at John, God looks at Jesus, and in his sacrificial love, he gives Jesus, he takes his life so that John can live. Does God love you? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at yourself unworthy. Look at Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, given for you so that you can live. God demonstrated his love toward us, toward me, in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That's the objective reality of God's love. Nothing can change that. Jesus died. He died for sinners. And in that moment that you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, you can say, yes, now I know the love of God objectively, but not just objectively. Because Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says this, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You know the love of God not, not only because it's an objective reality. You know the love of God because it is a subjective reality. It is something you experience. And I confess, you know, my, my uh, experience as a Christian is much more rational than it is 
experiential at times. I love theology. I love learning. I love reading. Uh, can't, can't get enough. If there's a new book on a topic that I'm interested in, I want to read it. If there's a tweak on a theological subject, I want to understand it. You know, I much of my Christianity is, is in my mind. And for many years, probably because of a reaction to the abuses of, of the charismatic movement, Pentecostalism, and the, the, the inordinate uh, emphasis on experience, often at the expense of doctrine. Many evangelicals move away from the desire of an experience with God and live basically their Christianity in their minds. But this text tells us that the love of God is poured out profusely into our hearts by the Spirit whom he has given to us. You know, many times if, if I will have the privilege of, of, of leading someone to Christ, uh, I, I will tell them that in your walk with God, there may be times when you don't feel like you're saved. But whether you feel like you're saved or not, if you're truly a child of God, nothing can change that. And I remember my, my dad, in his simplicity, always had an illustration. And he would say, John, you know, if, if you are on the train from Philadelphia to New York, and you are traveling there, and on the way as you're going through cities, you're going through farm fields, on the way you get sick, and you begin to regurgitate on that train. He says, whether you're sick or not, you are on the train to New York. Nothing changes that. And if the sickness leaves you and you're seeing beautiful sights and you're starting to feel good, it, you're still on the train to New York. And I like that illustration. But the truth is I would rather be on the train to New York not throwing up. I would rather not be sick. I would rather enjoy the ride. I would rather experience something good. And Romans 5 is telling us that God has made provision for that. That the spirit of God's presence in your life pours into your life like refreshing water on a dry and thirsty soul. Pours into your life this experience of the love of God. I like it the phrasing that he chooses, that God pours it. This is the language when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he quotes the prophet Joel. And he says, Joel said that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And when Pentecost actually happened, when the spirit came, 
Peter says, Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And later in Acts, when Gentile believers uh, receive the Spirit of God, Peter again uses that same language that the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles. And then Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, when he talks about being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he says, whom God has poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord. This this profuse uh, pouring out of the Spirit of God into our lives allows us to experience this, this infinite expression of the love of God. I understand that in the experience of human love, there's often a miscommunication of love. We talk to husbands and wives about this. A wife may, may say, my, my, my husband doesn't love me. And uh, he will say, but I do love her. Because his language of love may be, I bought you a dozen roses, and then I went out the door. And her language may be, I want you to spend more time with me. So often in the human communication of love, there is failure. There are people who think they are loving and it's not being received. And there are people who are wanting to be loved in a certain way and who feel like they're living without love. There's miscommunication. But God never miscommunicates. He is always on the right channel if you are on the right channel to receive it. If you are a believer, then God is pouring out love into your heart through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But if you're not on the right channel, if you're on the channel of living with guilt and shame and loneliness and overwhelmed by your sin, instead of living on the channel of faith and repentance that bows before the cross of Jesus Christ, then you will never experience the love of God. I can say that that night in September of 1970, when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, I began to experience the love of God. And as I look to the cross, as I live in repentance and faith, I continue to experience the love of God. But if I run from that love, or I suppress that love, or I deny that love, or I allow alien, idolatrous loves to usurp the love of God in my life, then I will not experience the love of God. And I've been there, and you've been there. 
Because when we don't continue to live with eyes to the cross, when we don't continue to live in faith and repentance, then we will not experience what God is always doing in our life, pouring out his love in our life. But the good news is, as a believer, even when you suppress that love and deny that love and run from that love or give into an idolatrous love, God keeps loving. The Old Testament reminds us a number of times, God is a jealous God. He claims you and he will fight for you to know his love. He won't give up on you. As James chapter four says, the the spirit of God in us is jealously yearning for us. So even though, as James says, I, I may become a friend of the world and an enemy of God, but the choices that I make in life, God will keep pursuing me. And let me say that unlike Old Testament Israel, where God came to a point and said, I divorced you, he will never do that to you in Christ. He will keep coming after you, pursuing you, until you see that his love is the sweetest love. His love is the most satisfying love. His love is the most secure love. His love is the love that never, ever fails. And when you know this love and experience this love, that you say with the Apostle Paul, those wonderful verses, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may sit listening today saying, but, but I've, I've miserably failed God. In Christ, God will never stop loving you. In Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can say, but, but I've rebelled, I've disobeyed, I'm not worthy of his love. You've never been worthy of his love. But he never stops loving. He gives us the Spirit of God to communicate to us this incomparable love of God. And the Spirit of God communicates this love to us as he keeps pushing us to look to the the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look to the cross, when we live in that reality of grace, God's love floods our hearts and we feel that incredible, unconditional love of God. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. And 
I pray this for me. I pray this for you. Paul said, I pray that out of the glorious, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, having been rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that goes beyond, it includes, but it goes beyond the objective reality that God demonstrated his love. To know this love in an experiential way that brings joy and satisfaction and completeness. He says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I can't even comprehend what that means, but it's good. Greg Nichols, in his lectures on systematic theology, I think says it so well. He says, when true Christians perceive and experience Christ's love for them, it feeds and satisfies their souls. Paul does not present incomprehensible love as an impenetrable wall that allows only speculation about what lies beyond it. Rather, he depicts it as an inexhaustible well of riches and glory from which thirsty saints may drink and be filled over and over without limitation forever. He says, unless we fill our souls with Christ's love, we will be hollow inside. And this world is full of empty people. A man full of himself is shallow because man is dust. Those full of the world are hollow because the world is vain. If we fill ourselves with entertainment or recreations or thrills or busyness or romance, our souls will shrivel and wither. Thanks be to God for this inexhaustible well of love from which to fill our souls. What a wonderful provision. Let us not be empty people. But let us rather contemplate and imbibe God's love until we are filled with all the fullness of God. This experience of God's love is not circumstantial. It's not dependent on good upbringing. This experience of God's love is supernatural. It is God's gracious gift to us. It is based on objective truth. 
but it becomes a subjective reality in this world. And let me say, this is what our world needs to, today. A world that's divided in so many ways. A world in which, you know, we're, we're, we're divided by identity politics, identity confusion, identity warfare, and on and on and on. And by that I simply mean there are people who want you to live your life being consciously defined by something that is temporal, whether it's your skin color, your economic status, your ethnicity, your gender. And they would tell you if in any of those categories you happen to be in a minority, then you should live with the feeling of oppression, that you should wage war against the alleged oppressors. But let me suggest God has a better way. He has the best way for any of us, for all of us, to resolve the identity issues in our life. Because from God's perspective, your identity is one of two things. I am an enemy of God. I am loved by God. They're the only two kinds of people there are in this world. John put it another way, he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. Romans would say you are either loved or an enemy. Look again at our text, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, you see that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You have an identity according to God. In Christ, your identity is Christ died for me. God loves me. God saved me from his wrath. God justified me. God reconciled me to himself. And if you're not in Christ, regardless of your economic status, your race, your gender, your ethnicity, if you're not in Christ, this is who you are. And this is what you need to come to grips with. You are powerless, ungodly, sinners, facing God's wrath. You're an enemy of God. You have either surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, and if you have done that, you are loved by God. 
And if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, you will never resolve your identity crisis until you see who you really are in the eyes of God. Helpless, sinner, ungodly, under God's wrath, an enemy. And let me say as Christians, those are the eyes through which we are to look at every human being in the world. Either as, as someone who needs to know the love of God, or someone who already knows the love of God, and they are my brother, my sister. We are part of the family of God. The other day I read something by Ken Davis from a Baptist Bible College and Seminary. He was referencing something that the uh, very well-known African-American pastor who's now deceased, E.V. Hill, was once asked the question if he thought that Jesus was a white man, if Jesus was Caucasian, and I like his answer. He says, I don't know anything about a white Jesus. I know about Christ, a savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in the brown Middle East. He fled to black Africa. He was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. I don't know what color he is, but I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind, or we could say with any other identity on your mind, if you bow at the altar with color on your mind, you'll get up with color on your mind. Go back again, he says, and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power, his power to save. And when you experience, and I add this, when you experience that power to save and the love of God is poured out into your heart, then you look at people as those who need to know the love of God or those who already know the love of God. There aren't any other kind of people in this world and there is no more important identity in this world. Let me talk for just a moment about the effects of God's love. He says in verse 5, and, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Everybody lives with some kind of hope, and any hope that you have as the means to find the ultimate joy that you're looking for, any hope that you have will fail. It will bring you to shame. Why did I ever trust in that? But Paul says our hope does not put us to shame because 
God has poured his infinite, eternal, steadfast, faithful love into our hearts. It doesn't matter what happens in life. It doesn't matter whether you're up here or down here or if your life is like this. If God loves you, if you believe that, if his spirit is communicating that to you in your heart, then regardless of what is happening in your life, your hope will never be put to shame. Because God's love will never, ever fail you. We live in a world that's full of despair that we could describe in a hundred different ways. But if you're a believer experiencing the love of God, it's not just positive thinking that is keeping you going. It's a biblical hope that has been sealed to your heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The effect of God's love is we have a hope that is sure that we are no longer enemies. We are friends of God. We are reconciled to God. What a comfort that this one who is perfectly holy, whom I had offended by my sin, this one who has the right to be angry with the wicked every day, This one who is at war with Satan and evil and has defeated them. This one who one day will pour out his fiery wrath and vengeance. This one loves me and has reconciled me to himself. This one is my friend. We sing that song, he's a good, good father. And it resonates with us. That's who he is. That's who he is. And I am loved by him. That's who I am. That's who I am. Who are you? Are you one who life is empty. You need to know the love of God which alone can fill you. Or are you one who is beginning to experience the love of God in your life? I conclude, I will conclude twice today with this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you've heard it so often, but listen to it again. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Enjoy experience, especially this incomparable love of God. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we should sit in awe and wonder that you would love us. 
And yet you have made it so that there should be no question in our mind that you love sinners because Christ died for us. If there's someone here today that does not, has not repented before you and surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, someone perhaps who has struggled to believe that there's a God who could love him or her, knowing who they really are, help them to believe that the cross cries out, God loves sinners. And may they, even in this moment, repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.